Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me uh, today for yet another uh, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, Dharma Talk offering. So today I'll be talking primarily about the Eightfold Path, um, which comes to us from the Buddhist tradition. And traditionally, uh, it is said to be the path that leads to the cessation of dukkha, or suffering. So that's a pretty tall claim, and I, I think it, it warrants investigating, right? Uh, if this is really the way out of our uh, struggle with life. Um, wow, well, I think we should really take a look at that. So before we uh, move into the, the topic of today, I do have an announcement. Uh, so these Facebook Live sessions that I'm offering on Thursdays are really a, a, a ramp up uh, to a 12-week online program that I'll be offering. Uh, this is entitled Awakened Living, Meeting Life with Wisdom, Kindness, Curiosity, and Care. And the program runs from December 1st to February 9th. Uh, this 12-week program is actually part one of a three-part series, but each of these uh, three parts are standalone. You don't have to commit to doing all three. You could just do one. But I, I think it's just worth mentioning. So in this 12-week program, we're going to look uh, at the Four Noble Truths of the Buddhist tradition, or the Four Tasks, as I, I like to call them. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, and how we can uh, practice these tasks. And uh, as a way of practicing these tasks and investigating uh, the reasons behind our struggles, we can free ourselves from those struggles. So that's the topic of the first 12-week course. The second 12-week course is tentatively entitled Embracing Change. So it's really uh, using mindfulness and meditation techniques to help us come to terms with the impermanence inherent in the human experience. The third one, uh, tentatively titled Emptiness. And so here again, we're looking at the, uh, the idea that nothing in our experience is a standalone, that everything is uh, connected and dependent on everything else. And these come from the three marks of existence in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, dukkha or suffering, uh, change and impermanence, and not-self or emptiness. Uh, so if you, if you have a background in Buddhist tradition, you probably know uh, the three marks of existence. It's said that all living beings uh, share these three marks of existence. We're all impermanent, we all suffer to some extent, and we're all really uh, a non-self. <laughs> I'm not going to go too much into the, the idea of not-self uh, now, um, but if that's interesting to you, please do either sign up for the course or uh, send some questions over. I'd be happy to have a chat around not-self, but 
that's a little bit outside of the offering today. So I do want to move into that. A little bit more about the 12-week program coming up. We'll be meeting once a week. Uh, the times are 7 to 10 p.m. East Coast Standard Time on Tuesday evenings. Uh, that's a, I know it's a three-hour block, which can seem pretty long, but there's, there will be a 20-minute break in the middle. Uh, and so if you're here in Thailand, uh, you know it's 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. here in Thailand on Wednesday mornings. There is a second section. Uh, if for those of us who find the first section uh, times challenging, uh, the second section will meet uh, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. Wednesday morning East Coast time. And that's really primarily to cater to people in Europe. Or if you're here in Asia and you'd rather do an evening session, uh, you know that'll be meeting uh, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Wednesday evenings here in Thailand. All of the uh, sessions will be recorded and made available on Zoom. So if you'd like to do the whole program on your own, on your own time and your own pace, you're welcome to do that. Uh, just let me know when you sign up. Or you might want to do half of the program and you know that the, you know, some of the Tuesdays or Wednesdays you won't be able to make, that's also fine. No worries. There's no commitment to make all of the sessions, uh, particularly over a 12-week course. That's, that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a big commitment. So don't worry about that. Okay, I think that's all of the announcements I'd like to make. So I'm going to move into today's offering. On the Eightfold Path. So I think I just want to start here by reading from the discourse. This is the the actual text and there's I've changed some words around here uh, to appeal to a secular voice. I've taken the religious connotation out of the discourse here. So this is a real kind of a secular rendition and this is based on uh, some of Stephen Batchelor's translations as well. So this is the first teaching uh, that the Buddha gives to his student of five ascetics. One gone forth from home to homelessness does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality which is vulgar and village-like, and addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, undignified, and unfulfilling. I have awoken to a middle path which does not lead to two dead ends. It is a path which generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility and lucid understanding, awakening and release. It is just this eightfold noble path. Complete seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentration. So I'm just gonna stop there. That's about halfway through the discourse, but there the Buddha just brought out what has come to us now uh, to be known as the Eightfold Path. He says, and this is the path, 
the path with eight limbs or eight branches. Appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. So this is really an answer to the question, how do we live and flourish in this human experience? And so in the earlier sessions of the Thursday morning offerings, we took a, a look at the fourfold task or what comes to us now traditionally as the Four Noble Truths. And those tasks, the practices there, are to, to fully know our struggles. The Buddha said to fully know dukkha. Dukkha is really often translated as suffering, but proves to be a, a problematic translation. It, it's really talking about the pain of life. Birth, sickness, aging, and death, not getting what one wants, and so forth. The second of these four tasks is to let go of our reactivity. That it, the reactivity that we indulge in often causes a great amount of suffering for ourselves and for others. The third task, to behold the cessation. When we can let go of our reactive patterns, there's a, a quality a feeling, generally a somatic feeling, or it can be a feeling in the mind, a feeling in the heart, to get to know that feeling, because that's the fuel. That's the fuel that allows us to walk the Eightfold Path. And that's the fourth of the four tasks, to cultivate a way of life which we can more easily uh, and more readily know our struggles. The more readily we know our struggles, the easier we let go of our reactivity. We become more sensitive to what it feels like when we let go of our reactivity, which brings us more energy to cultivate a mindful way of life. The more mindful we are in life, the more we can fully know our suffering. And it's just this really wonderful and elegant upward spiral from there. Right. So there's no, there's no ending to the path. It's not that we do these three tasks and then we start the, the Eightfold Path and then at the Eightfold Path we're enlightened into Nirvana. Some, some translators, some teachers perhaps present it in that way. I find that to be very problematic. That it's just this never-ending cycle of cultivating this way of life so that we can fully embrace our struggle, our suffering, fully embrace life, really. In that fully embracing of life, we start to let go of our reactivity, which feels good. We learn to, to behold the cessation, which inspires us to continue bringing mindfulness to all aspects of our life. So let's talk about that for, for a while now. 
So the traditional translation of the eight limbs, the eightfold path, if you have a Buddhist background, you're probably very familiar with this already. Uh, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So a couple of things about this transition, uh, that this traditional translation that I find problematic. First, the, the word right. And this is, comes from the Sanskrit word sama. And so the, the translation of right from sama, sama doesn't really translate as right. <laughs> that translation is wrong, ironically. So there are some, perhaps some better translations or more accurate translations. I use the word appropriate here uh, in the reading when I read the text there. I think that that really speaks to the idea, appropriate view, appropriate intention. As this sort of, you know, kind of lends itself to finding that middle way. What's the appropriate amount right here? What's the appropriate amount of concentration? What's the appropriate amount of mindfulness? Another translation is the right amount. Similar, similar idea there. The right measure. A particular viewpoint. Having a viewpoint the view of intention, the view of mindfulness. Skillful is a, is a translation that I often gravitate to as well. Skillful view, skillful intention, skillful speech. I like that. And one of my favorites too is a to, way to translate Sama is complete. And so I, I like that too, complete effort, complete livelihood, complete action and so forth. For me, that really speaks to the idea of holding the whole picture in mind when we move forward. And then also, you know, something that, that pops out at me as problematic to this very traditional translation of the Eightfold Path is that the view, intention, speech, action, they, they seem to to imply that there is a finish line, that when we cultivate right view, then we're awake in that sense, when we cultivate right intention. So it implies that there's a certain, a certain practice and then we do that practice and accomplish a result. That's, that's, uh, that's problematic. <laughs> because that, that leads to the dead end, right? The Buddha was saying, I found a middle way that doesn't lead to these two dead ends. But if, if we do a practice that leads to the end of right view, that's a dead end. There's, that we stop there. So I, I like the idea of these, you know, allowing that to be open, like in this translation, seeing, thinking, talking, 
acting, working. It's not implying that there's an end result that we need to land in and then we're somehow awake. But it's this constant endeavor, this constant practice of life. Like that. So I, I liked the idea of keeping them as verbs, right? So that it remains open. And then I hate to, you know, be harping on the translations, but I, I think it's worth worth mentioning here that, you know, often this is called uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, right? But that's actually not how the, the Sanskrit translates. The Sanskrit, Arya Atangiko Maga, I'm sure I got the pronunciation wrong, <laughs> actually translates to the Path of the Noble Ones or the Ennobling Path. So the nobility is to the practitioner, not to the path itself. The path is just the path. It's just uh, a pointer in how we can uh, bring mindfulness to all aspects of our life. So the path itself ennobles the practitioner. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's quite lovely, actually. So the Eightfold Path, traditionally, and this is part of the tradition that I actually uh, adhere to or I'm fond of, it's given or, or um, taught in three branches. Uh, sila, which is the branch of ethics and morality. Samadhi, which is the branch of meditation, mindfulness, and concentration. And Panya, or, or Prajna, uh, which is the wisdom branch, appropriate understanding and appropriate intention, like that. So, three branches here, and I'm not going to go into all three today. I don't have time for that. Plus, I'm doing another one next week, so I need to save something to talk about. <laughs> so these are quite rich, and so I'm going to take a, a bit of a deep dive into right view and right intention today, which is the, uh, the wisdom branch. Just checking my notes here to make sure I didn't miss anything. I very, very infrequently follow my notes. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so samaditi, or right view, appropriate view or a complete view, or a skillful view. So, this is not implying any kind of dogma. It's not saying that you have to have the view of a Buddhist. And so this is where I think uh, this idea of complete view, or, or appropriate view, is, is very, very helpful. Because the Buddha never said you have to hold this view to walk this path. In fact, he was quite opposed to that idea. So here's a passage from one of the earliest uh, texts called the Chapter of Eights. I think this is in the Samyutta Nikaya. It's in the Pali Canon. 
and here's the words of the Buddha. The wise do not elaborate a view on the grounds of knowledge or morals. He neither claims to be equal nor thinks of himself as better or worse. Not better than, not worse than, not equal to. The wise lets go of one position without picking up another. The wise are not defined by what they know. Nor do the wise join a dissenting faction. They assume no view at all. The wise are not lured into the blind alleys of it is and it is not. The wise lack those commitments. So the Buddha really, you know, pretty strongly recommending that one holds views very lightly. In the Buddha's time, there was great arguments between it is and it is not, between eternalism and nihilism. And there were often these arguments uh, in ancient India and huge debates on whether the soul was eternal or not eternal, uh, that there was life after death or not life after death, uh, that the world was eternal, the world was not eternal. The Buddha would often say that this all of this debating meets, misses the point. It doesn't help us live a life in which we can flourish. And, you know, just kind of recognizing that these debates have been going on for over 2,500 plus years, and we still haven't come to a, an answer. So the wise doesn't pursue these two dead ends of it is and it is not. And this is, for me, this is one of the aspects of complete view. Holding these loosely held views, which help us really to then meet the present moment as it arises, rather than engaging in the present moment through the filter of a belief system. When we're attached to a belief system, we're attached to the way things should be. And then every experience we encounter weighs in on our nervous system filtered through that belief system. We encounter things that agree with our belief system, we feel good. We encounter things or people that disagree with our belief system, we feel bad. So I want to re-emphasize this idea of holding our views loosely. This doesn't mean we don't have views at all. It'd be really challenging uh, to live life in that way. But just to recognize that the way we see the world and the way we think the world ought to be is often not the way the world is. And it's often not the way our fellow 
brothers and sisters, our other humans, see the world and experience the world. So by this type of complete view or appropriate view allows us to meet our fellow brothers and sisters, our human family, as humans rather than as objects which personify a particular belief system that inevitably gives us something to struggle against. So the Eightfold Path, which I read a little while ago, is sometimes referred to as the Middle Way. The Buddha actually refers to it in that in the, in the discourse. I have found a middle way, and then he outlines the Eightfold Path. And so we can clearly see in that chapter of eights, you know, this entails not being lured into the dogmatic views of it is or it is not. Being and not being. This world or the next world. And this idea isn't, you know, a Buddhist idea. Uh, we see this also in Greek philosophy. Uh, Aristotle often spoke of what he called the unspoken middle. And I, I really like the way Aristotle presents that. The unspoken middle ground. Because as soon as you put a label on it, as a, a product of language, it creates an equal and opposite label. That's how language works. If we're, if we're experiencing our world, our experience through words, which most of us do, then our world arises in terms of opposites. And so both Aristotle and the Buddha and Nagarjuna and Hui Ning and many other teachers recognize that language doesn't capture the fluid, ephemeral experience of life. And so for these teachers and philosophers, the life or the path of freedom is the path beyond labels, the unspoken middle. So we can see and perhaps explore uh, how we might fall into these extremes or other extremes in our day-to-day -day experience. Right? We tend to think that how we see the world is how the world actually is and our political view is how is an implication of how the world really should be and our you know ideologies is really how the world is <laughs> but it's not and so these practices that we'll be engaging in on the 12 week course uh, we'll be taking a real deep dive into how we can perhaps cultivate a complete view. So moving on to the next one here, the next 
limb of these eight limbs, right intention or appropriate intention, skillful intention. And so part of this skillful intention is to kind of pledge, an, as one teacher likes to say, to pledge allegiance to compassion. That we embark on these practices of mindfulness, the practices of the four tasks, the Eightfold Path, as a way of not only freeing ourselves from our struggle, from our suffering, but then also uh, seeing how we can help others. And so right away there's this ethical quality. Even though we're not in the, the uh, sila branch of the Eightfold Path just yet, we'll get to that next week. But here with right intention we kind of already are seeing that, okay, there's this idea of this isn't only my work. It's my work, I clean up myself so that I can relate to the world in a way that uh, causes less suffering for others, perhaps alleviates suffering for others, and so forth. So it's not only about uh, being more mindful so that we can free ourselves from suffering. It's this really right intention is pointing at this interconnectedness of all beings that we're all intimately connected with each other. Another part of right intention is this idea of, I hesitate to say the word, renunciation. But it's not renunciation as the way it's often thought of in the West. It's the idea of we kind of have to give up something in order to gain something else. And so to give up what is appropriate in our life that no longer serves us, whether it's giving up uh, a type of, you know, a, our favorite food that in some way is affecting our health, you know, that might be a type of renunciation, you know, figuring out what's not serving us, what's not skillfully uh, benefiting our life. and giving that up so we can have more space in our life for the things that do benefit us. So that's the idea behind renunciation. So, as some of you know, I, I, I offer one-on-one -on -one meditation sessions uh, online and in person. And, you know, when I'm working with a beginning student, they often have that question, well, how do I, you know, cultivate a practice how do I how do I you know make a meditation practice a habit and there is this quality of giving up something you know if you're gonna really commit to spending 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes a half an hour an hour however long you're gonna commit to uh, a daily practice that's going to require some form of renunciation, some form of giving up something else. You know, you might have been, that might have been your television time. 
or that might have been, you know, whatever it was, that might have been your time to, to do something else, to, to scroll through Facebook or whatever it was. And so to make that conscious stepping away from is a big part of this appropriate or skillful intention. So giving up what is appropriate to give up so that we might have more space in our life uh, to, to bring in things that would better serve us. This, it's not only in regards to meditation, if you really think about it, right? It could be learning an instrument. Or, you know, if you want to read a book, you have to give up watching a movie, right? If you want to watch a movie, you have to put the instrument down. And so it's the same thing with meditation. It requires a mindful move of saying, okay, I'm going to give this up so I can cultivate this practice. So in the text that I just read here, the beginning of the text, the Buddha says, when one goes forth from home to homelessness, what does that mean for us? In, in, the, in the tradition, when the, when the Buddha was around, that actually meant giving up a, a home life to become a monastic. That doesn't really apply to, to many of us. It doesn't apply to myself. It doesn't apply to, I think, all of, my, all of the people that I work with as students. So what does that mean for a householder, for a family person? to go from home to homelessness. And so, again, it points to this idea of right intention or complete intention. We can look for the abodes of comfort that we've cultivated in our life. We can say, well, yeah, that, that you know, Perhaps that second cup of coffee in the morning doesn't really serve me anymore. I get quite jittery. So maybe that was one of the abodes that I cultivated. So going from that home of comfort, because I'd been drinking that second cup of coffee for years and years and years, and, and leaving that home for the homelessness, for the groundlessness, that is, is now there because all of the time that it would have taken to make that cup of coffee now becomes available. And it's kind of this open space in the day. And so that homelessness, that groundlessness, which now becomes available for something more meaningful, something which serves my life. I actually had a really kind of... Um, kind of an interesting experience with this. I, sometimes I do some uh, uh, fasting, uh, not, not for days and days, but just the, I forgot what they call it, the 16-8, you know, you fast for 16 hours, you eat for eight hours and so forth. And so when I do that type of diet, uh, I, I immediately recognize that I've gone from the, the comfort of that home of preparing the I generally skip breakfast when I do that. So I'm not preparing the breakfast. I'm not you know, eating the breakfast. 
And so now I have this groundlessness. There's a spaciousness to my day, which I can then fill with, perhaps with meditation or with study or whatever it is that would better support me in that moment. So that's the idea behind uh, renunciation or going from home to homelessness. It's not that we have to, you know, sell all, all of our belongings or give away all our belongings and, you know, put everything in a backpack and go to the mountains. It's not the idea. But it, it really, what the invitation is, is to recognize how much energy and time these abodes that we've created in our habitual way of being, how much energy those take to maintain. And once we can see into that and feel into that, say, ah, oh, all of this energy is taken by making that second cup of coffee or by really eating that meal when I'm not hungry or, you know, whatever it is. And so this practice of right intention or skillful intention, complete intention, is really an invitation to investigate, uh, I think what some teachers might call energy leaks in our, in our schedule, in our time, in our way of being, that don't serve us any longer. And what's really quite extraordinary is when we reclaim that energy and uh, that energy becomes more available for our meditation practice we start to cultivate a, a stronger sense of mindfulness that mindfulness is then used to embrace more and more of our life including our struggles of life we have more capacity to let go of our reactive patterns you see where I'm going. This is the four tasks all over again, right? We have more energy to, to recognize the letting go and how good that feels. And all of that energy gets put back into the Eightfold Path once again. Okay. So I think... I'm going to stop there. A couple of more things I'd like to mention. So the Eightfold Path, you know, it's really, it's a great uh, teaching tool, a great way of uh, presenting these uh, eight aspects, which are, are really symbolic of our entire life. Ethics, wisdom, and meditation practice, mindfulness. And so it, it's often thought that it needs to go in a particular order. I don't think that's very helpful. And so I'll finish the other branches or limbs of the Eightfold Path next time, next week. But for now, I just want to mention that uh, it's not that you have to cultivate right view and then cultivate right intention and then cultivate right speech and then cultivate right action and so forth. Each limb of the Eightfold Path uh, supports the other. And 
once we've really cultivated a practice of bringing mindfulness to these eight aspects of our life, it's quite easy to see then how it's not a systematic walking of a path in that sense. And so in one of the texts, I, I forgot which one, uh, the Buddha talks about these eight qualities as being like, like eggs that a, a hen will hatch. And I really like that. I think that's a very helpful uh, visualization or, or way of conceiving the Eightfold Path. Because a hen hatches the eggs by, by applying equal amount of warmth throughout the, the, the group of eggs. And when one gets too warm, the hen will move over, sit more warmth on the other eggs and gently turn a warm egg and then re replace herself on the, the clutch of eggs. And so I find that very helpful for a few reasons. First of all, it keeps us from appropriating uh, a greater amount of importance on one of the eggs than on the others. And I think this is, you know, in the West anyway, but really worldwide, we see mindfulness as really being heavily emphasized as opposed to perhaps skillful speech or skillful action or skillful intention. That's not getting the, the airplay that mindfulness is, right? But ideally, cultivating all eight equally, with equal warmth, being equally near and equally engaging to all eight of these aspects of our life. Okay. Thank you all for joining me today, whether you're watching live or if you're watching this back on video. I really do appreciate it. Uh, if you've seen me give these talks before, you know how much I love doing this. <laughs> and I wouldn't be able to do it if nobody was watching. Uh, so I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, if you find what I've offered here intriguing, please do think about signing up for the 12-week course. Uh, it meets once a week on Tuesday evenings or Wednesday mornings, or depending on where you are in the world, it could be Wednesday evenings or Wednesday afternoons. Uh, and then there's also a separate section where there'll be breakout groups or study groups. I won't be on those sessions. There, it's an invitation for the participants to get together on their own to really hash out uh, some of these uh, these topics, which can be pretty rich. And so there'll be study groups um, created and made available for the participants as well. Again, everything will be recorded and made available over Zoom uh, for people who have a busy schedule and can't make some or all of the sessions. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to see you all out there. That'd be great. Uh, it looks like a great program. I'm looking forward to it myself. Uh, okay. Next week, by the way, uh, the Facebook Lives will be on Monday and Wednesday rather than Tuesday and Thursday. Monday is Loving Kindness, and these are all Thailand times, so it can be Sunday uh, in the States. Uh, uh, Monday and or Sunday is Loving Kindness. Wednesday and or Tuesday 
is a wrap-up on the Eightfold Path. Okay, have a great evening or morning or afternoon, and I'll ring the bell to close us out. Thank you.